to the ASHP official podcast, your guide to issues related to medication use, public health, and the profession of pharmacy. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Therapeutic Thursdays podcast. This podcast provides an opportunity to listen in as members sit down to discuss what's new and ongoing in the world of therapeutics. My name is Kate Tauscher, and I'm the System Manager for Oncology and Infusion Pharmacy Services at UC Health, and I'll be your host for today's episode. With me today are Dr. Laura Graham, who is one of our genitourinary medical oncologists, and Hiba Ahmad, who is our genitourinary clinical oncology pharmacist, both from the University of Colorado Hospital. Thanks for joining us today, Dr. Graham and Hiba. Let's get started today talking about today's topic, which is choosing between the various treatment options for relapsed or stage four clear cell renal cell carcinoma. And I'll refer to that as RCC from here on out. So to get us started, can you briefly describe how the landscape of RCC has shifted in the past few years? So talk to us about what the previous gold standards were and how that's changed over the past few years. Yeah. So there's been a huge shift in our treatment options over the last decade or more, actually. So in the 90s and early 2000s, we were really reliant on IL-2 therapy, which is highly toxic, but also a subset of patients had a very durable and very complete response, which was an early suggestion that this cancer would be very immunoresponsive. Then we kind of shifted into the first generation tyrosine kinase inhibitor era. So things like sunitinib or serafinib, and that was really our mainstay of first line treatment until the checkpoint inhibitors came along in the early 2010s or so. And actually in the last four or five years, we've had now several frontline combination therapies approved. So the combination of ipilimumab and nivolumab was approved in 2018. Pembro and axitinib was approved in April of 2019. And then in 2021, we had both nivolumab and cabozantinib approved and pembrolizumab and lumatinib approved for first-line treatment options. So lots of options in the first line and lots of change in the last several years. So what are some of the guideline recommendations like from NCCN in terms of treatment options for clear cell RCC? So there's a few which differ by risk category. So basically it's either an IO-IO combination. So that's two immuno-oncology agents and we're calling that IO for short or an IO-TKI combination. So that's an immuno-oncology agent plus a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. So in the favorable risk category for clear cell RCC, we have three options that are all category one by NCCN. So we have Axipembro, second we have Cabonevo, and then last we have Lenpen. And so these are the three category one options in favorable risk. And then when you move to intermediate and poor risk group, um, you have all the three I mentioned above. And then there's a fourth option, which is your IO-IO combination, which is Ipinevo. Great. So that still sounds like you have a lot of options. So how do you decide on which type of option to select? So thinking about what data from the landmark studies with these different regimens would help to guide you in selection. Yeah. So, and that is definitely the million dollar question. And part of our goal here today is there's so many options and how do we choose? So when thinking about the data, I will cover the data for the ipilimumab-nivolumab combination, which came from the Checkmate 214 study. Before I talk about that, I just want to briefly mention this idea of risk stratification. So a lot of these trials have used the IMDC risk score, which separates patients into favorable risk or intermediate or poor risk. 
And that's based on a combination of factors, including performance status, time to initiation of therapy, hemoglobin, calcium, neutrophil count, and platelets. So Checkmate 214 randomized 1,096 patients to either sunitinib, which is our control arm, or the combination of nivolumab, which is a PD-1 checkpoint inhibitor, plus ipilimumab, which is an anti-CTLA-4 checkpoint inhibitor. And that combo was given every three weeks for four cycles, followed by nivolumab maintenance therapy. So nitinib was given as a 50 milligram oral pill daily, four weeks out of six. So this trial included patients that were favorable, intermediate, and poor risk, but the primary endpoint was overall survival and response rate in patients only with intermediate or poor risk disease. And they found that overall survival was significantly longer in the ipinevo combination arm, so about 55.7 months compared to 38.7 months. And objective response rate was 42% versus 27% in the sunitinib arm. And there was a 9% complete response rate in the ipinevo combo. In exploratory analysis of the subset of patients with favorable risk disease, they actually found that both overall survival and response rate favored sunitinib. So that's why we don't tend to use ipinevo in our favorable risk patients. Thanks, Dr. Graham. So as we mentioned earlier, the first IOTKI combination was FDA approved in 2019 for metastatic relapse RCC, and that was a year after the approval of ipinevo. So this came from Keynote 426, and the approval of Axipembro came in April 2019. So this was a phase three randomized multicenter open-level trial evaluating 861 clear cell RCC patients without prior treatment. So patients either received single agent sunitinib or they received Pembro with Axi um, and the dose of the Axitinib was five milligrams orally twice daily. So data for all these trials comes from GEOASCO 2022. We just have more mature data and long-term follow-up from GEOASCO in 2022 than was originally reported in these trials. So the overall survival, the median overall survival was 55.7 months in the treatment arm with a hazard ratio for death of 0.73. And then we also found that overall response rate was about 60% in the treatment arm versus 40% in the control arm with complete response in about 10% of patients versus 4% of patients in the control arm. So the next combination was Checkmate 9ER. So that was approved in January 2021, and that was for the combination of the IOTKI NEVO-CABO. So this was a phase three randomized multicenter open-level trial evaluating 651 patients. And again, patients received either sunitinib, which was the control drug, or nivolumab plus cabozantinib. And so that was given at 40 milligrams by mouth once daily. And again, the best long-term data we have comes from GU ASCO 2022. So the median overall survival was 37.7 months in the treatment arm versus 34.3 months with a hazard ratio for death of 0.7. And then the overall response rate was 56% versus 28%. And then the complete response was 12% in the treatment arm versus 5% in the control arm. So lastly, our latest approval was from the CLEAR-2 study in August 2021, and that was with 
pembrolimbatinib. So this was a phase three randomized multi-center one-to-one to one ratio trial where patients were given either one of three regimens. So they were either given lenvatinib plus pembro, lenvatinib plus everolimus, or sunitinib. So here we're going to focus on the lenvatinib plus pembro or sunitinib groups. So again, patients received either sunitinib, which was the control arm, or pembro plus lenvatinib, and lenvatinib was dosed at 20 milligrams once daily. So the median overall survival here was actually not reached in either group. The overall response rate with and going back, the hazard ratio was 0.72. Overall response rate was 71% versus 36%. And then complete response was 16% versus 4% in the control arm. So overall, we see that the IOTKI combinations have shown reliable benefit in overall survival when compared to our previous standard of care treatment agent, which was single agent sunitinib. Wow, that's a lot of compelling data from all of those different studies. So thank you for reviewing that in detail uh, for us. So given the data that you guys reviewed, as well as the NCCN Category 1 recommendations, So now what, how do we decide which of these combination treatment options to choose for a patient? Like, is there an explicit guideline or algorithm? You know, as a treating oncologist, Dr. Graham, how do you decide what to choose and what factors would you look at? Yeah, I mean, I think the main takeaway from all that data is we have lots of really good options. We have no head-to-head comparisons. So it's really difficult to say that one regimen is going to be better than the other. So I think our treatment decisions are really based on patient-specific factors, specific contraindications to therapy, whether or not there's specific schedule preferences and things like that, and partly just comfort with a particular regimen. So I usually start by asking whether the patient would be better suited for combination immunotherapy or an IOTKI regimen. As I mentioned earlier, if someone has favorable risk disease, you're really just looking at the IOTKI combos. But in someone who has intermediate or poor risk disease, and they don't have any contraindications to IO therapy, I tend to prefer the combination immunotherapy regimen, partly because we've got the best overall survival data from that regimen. Again, with all the caveats that you can't compare these things across trials. And two, there's this idea that there's a subset of patients that respond very durably to immunotherapy. And so I like to maximize the possibility of that upfront. However, I think our general understanding of this combination immunotherapy is that it's not going to result in really rapid responses. So if you have someone who has very bulky disease, has very symptomatic disease, that's someone you're probably going to lean towards that TKI-IO combo, keeping in mind, of course, the specific toxicities of both the IO agents and the TKI agents, which I think we're going to talk about in just a little bit. So I think the main takeaway is just that we've got lots of options. I think it's a discussion with each patient. I don't think we think that one regimen is better than the other. And so there's pros and cons of kind of each of these different choices. Great. Thanks for talking us through some of your decision process. I think that's really helpful to hear in terms of thinking about how we look at these different regimens. So kind of shifting gears a little bit, knowing that these are combination regimens and we're talking about either an IO doublet or two different types of therapy, right, with an IO and a TKI, what's the mechanism of action of these different medications and and how do they work in the body? Yeah, so let's start by reviewing the immunotherapy medications. Those are also known as checkpoint inhibitors. So just a brief recap, tumor cells can express antigens, which are not usually seen or expressed in healthy cells. 
So theoretically, this should allow our immune system to target and eradicate these cancer cells, and it does that by activating T-cell activity. However, cancer cells can upregulate checkpoints, which are designated to induce energy and loss of T-cell activity. This is normally a protective mechanism to prevent overstimulation of the immune system against healthy tissues, but cancer cells can leverage this into an adaptive mechanism to hide from the body's anti-tumor immune system. So there's a couple of checkpoint inhibitors we use in RCC, including ipilimumab, nivolumab, and pembrolizumab. And just of note, avalumab is one of them, but it's not category one, so we're not really going to be discussing that here. So let's talk about CTLA-4 inhibitor, ipilimumab. It's a monoclonal antibody that targets CTLA-4, a transmembrane receptor protein that prevents activation of T-cells. The binding to TCLA4 improves T-cell stimulation, thereby improving anti-tumor immune response. And then next, we have our PD-1 inhibitors, including nivolumab and pembrolizumab. So these are also monoclonal antibodies, which bind to the T-cell's PD-1 checkpoint receptor. And then this interaction blocks the PD-1 T-cell checkpoint receptor binding with PD-L1 tumor cells, and that results in activation of the immune system and then repair of T-cell effector function and consequently tumor apoptosis. So that's immunotherapy. So let's talk really quick about oral anti-cancer targeted therapy agents or our TKIs. And that's exitinib, lenvatinib, and cabozantinib. So these TKIs are further classified as vascular endothelial growth factor inhibitors or VEGF inhibitors. And this inhibition is responsible for tumor angiogenesis, endothelial perforation, migration, and nitric oxide release. So exitinib specifically is a selective second-generation TKI, and that blocks only VEGF1, 2, and 3 receptors. Whereas lenvatinib, it's a multi-targeted TKI, effectively blocking not only VEGF1, 2, and 3, but other multiple um, cellular targets as well. And then lastly, cabozantinib is a potent inhibitor of VEGF1, 2, and 3, and several other receptors as well. So this induces apoptosis of cancer cells and suppresses tumor growth, as we had mentioned before. So when we're choosing between the TKI and immunotherapy combination, one way to help choose is knowing what side effects we're trying to avoid in a patient with comorbidities. For example, the more potent the VEGF binding the higher degree of proteinuria and hypertension. So we see this with um, lenvatinib and exitinib, for example, just to kind of give you an idea of how we select things. Great. Before we jump to side effects, let's talk about dosing and frequency. So with each of these agents, I, I can't imagine they're all the same in terms of how you give them, knowing that their mechanisms of actions are all very different. So can you tell us a little bit about the dosing and the frequency? Sure. So dosing for the IO, IO doublet therapy is, so we have nivolumab IV and it's three migs per keg. And then you have ipilimumab IV, which is one mig per keg every 21 days for four doses. And that's kind of what we call our induction phase. And this is followed by nivolumab monotherapy at a dose of three migs per keg every two weeks, which is our maintenance phase. Um, and I just want to uh, make clear, there is a flat dosing schedule of nivolumab 480 milligrams every four weeks, and it's also been shown to have similar pharmacologic activity and safety with the less frequent dosing being more convenient for patients. So we also have that as an option for a maintenance dose. Moving on to Lenpem, Lenbatinib is administered at a dose of 20 milligrams orally once daily, and then you have Pembro um, administered at a dose of 200 milligrams IV on days one of each 21-day treatment cycle. 
Then with Cabo-Nivo, Cabo is administered at a dose of 40 milligrams orally once daily, and then nivolumab is given 240 milligrams IV on day one of each 14-day treatment cycle. And lastly, we have Axipembro. So Exitinib is dosed at five milligrams orally twice daily. And just of note, the dose could be increased to seven milligrams, then 10 milligrams twice daily if Cytofix permit. And then it can also be dose reduced to three milligrams and then two milligrams twice daily to manage any toxicities associated with it. And then Pembro is administered at a dose of 200 milligrams IV on day one of each 21-day treatment cycle, just like it would be um, if it was given with lenvatinib. Awesome. Thanks for going through that. So I heard a lot of every 21 day, every 14 day, every day. Well, how long do we do that for? Yeah. So there's not a lot of clear data on this. I think the general paradigm in metastatic disease is you treat until progression or unacceptable toxicity. But if you get lucky, there are these subsets of patients that have great responses to either the combination of IO therapy or these IO TPI combos. And you might be in a situation where it's a couple years down the line Either there's no evidence of disease on scans or very minimal evidence of disease on scans, and you're wondering if how much your really, mileage you're really getting out of these therapies and whether you can take a break. So I think most oncologists would probably stop after about two years. There's some emerging data on that being a, a good time point in other cancers. And then actually both Keynote 426 and Checkmate 214 stopped the IO therapy after two years. And then there was just a recent analysis looking at treatment-free survival in patients who either discontinued um, ipinevo or sunitinib from that initial checkmate trial. And treatment-free survival was significantly longer with ipinevo, so 21% versus 7% with the sunitinib arm. So kind of suggesting that there may be a subset of patients that even once you discontinue the IO therapy, they're still having a durable response. And then I think the other question is, if you stop this therapy and they've got progression, can you restart it and still have effect? And so we're working on answering that question as well. Lots of areas of future research, it sounds like, still still going on. So jumping back, Hiba, to kind of what you alluded to um, a little bit ago in terms of toxicities and side effects. So can you talk to us a little bit more, knowing the differences in mechanism of action, how does that affect the differences in side effects? And you know, if we're talking about doublet therapy, what kind of overlap does that look like? How do you manage these? Tell us a little bit more about, about toxicities and adverse effects. Absolutely. So your immune checkpoint inhibitors, so that CTLA-4 and PD-1 inhibitors, those are associated with occurrence of immune-related adverse effects. So usually we call them IRAEs, or just we can just call it AEs for short. And those are associated with any organ system, which presents as an inflammatory process, essentially. So the organs most commonly involved include the skin that manifests like, or that's known as dermatitis, GI tract or colitis, liver, so hepatitis, and then endocrine hormone problems that can affect thyroid, pituitary, adrenal glands, and pancreas, and then also your pulmonary system as well, so pneumonitis. Um, Dermatologic toxicities are probably the most common IREs that are associated with checkpoint inhibitors, with GI toxicity onset often appearing after that skin toxicity. This is followed by endocrine hepatic toxicities, which appear a few weeks into treatment. So the toxicities are all dose-related with CTLA-4 inhibitors, but not with PD-1 or PDL one inhibitors. And so while the IRAs can present at any time during or after treatment, usually occurs within weeks to a few months after treatment starts. 
And there's no guarantee that every person is going to have these side effects. So even though we have a general idea of time points for side effects, that doesn't mean that each patient will present exactly the same. So some do really well, and some people have these side effects on these timelines that I kind of laid out. What is important to note is that treatments with the checkpoint inhibitor doublet, so the IO-IO ipinevo combo, those considerably increase the risk of adverse effects and potential need for treatment discontinuation. It's always recommended to report, identify, and manage IRAs early and as soon as they present in order to prevent more serious side effects that might be harder to manage later on. Oftentimes, those adverse effects related to checkpoint inhibitors require temporary or permanent discontinuation of the offending agent in order to reduce and prevent further inflammation. Treatment for these immunotherapies are always going to be high-dose steroids if we need to treat. So looking at the different studies um, with Pembroaxi, the most commonly reported adverse effects were diarrhea and hypertension. With our LENPEM group, it was diarrhea, hypertension, and hypothyroidism. In our CABO-NEVO group, it was diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome, which we can attribute to the CABO, and then hypertension. And then in your IO-IO doublet, patients most commonly reported fatigue, pruritus, diarrhea, and rash. So, you know, that's mostly focusing on your immuno-oncology agents. So if we're looking specifically on common side effects associated with each TKI, most of them are pretty similar and they can certainly overlap, but depending on the specific TKI's mechanism of action and receptor targets, some side effects are definitely more pronounced depending on which TKI it is. So class side effects for the TKIs include diarrhea, fatigue, anorexia, mucositis, gastritis, hypertension, and then hand-foot syndrome. Also impaired wound healing does occur. So headache, hypertension, and then proteinuria also are pretty common side effects of these medications. So looking at each medication on its own, exitinib is definitely more prone to causing hypertension and proteinuria whereas lenvatinib can cause that as well, including fistulas. And then looking at cabozantinib, some notable side effects for that one include hair color changes, oral mandibular pain or mucositis, hemorrhage, and GI perforation. So with patients getting combination therapy, how do you distinguish kind of potentially which one it's coming from? Yeah, that's really difficult because as Tim alluded to, a lot of the side effects overlap. And a lot of the common side effects overlap too. So things like diarrhea, rash, she reminded me as well, you know, when we're counseling patients, it can be really hard to counsel patients on all these side effects, you know, and often I'll tell them with these IO therapies that the instance of any single side effect is very low, but the cumulative instance of having some side effect is actually quite high. So I think that's just a challenge when thinking about counseling patients and then also a challenge when thinking about how to differentiate side effects. So I think everyone's slightly different in how they practice. One common way that we kind of get around this confusion about which agent's causing which side effect is we'll often start the TKI first, because if you're going to get side effects from the TKI, you're usually going to get those pretty quickly. And then you at least kind of understand the baseline side effects. So is this someone who's going to have some diarrhea that needs to be managed with Imodium? Are you going to get some hand foot syndrome, some itching? Is, are you going to start getting your hypothyroidism just with the TKI? And then we'll add on the IO. And then you're really looking for changes. So has that diarrhea gotten a lot worse? You know, has the rash gotten worse? Things like that. 
And then if someone's been doing well and all of a sudden they develop a new side effect and you're still not sure which one it is, kind of depending on the severity, you might decide to hold the TKI, see if it gets better. If you're really suspicious that this is an immune-related adverse event and it's a high grade, then you might give steroids like Hiva mentioned. So a lot of different options, but yes, this can be actually quite tricky with these combos. Thanks for highlighting some of those difficulties. Can you talk a little bit more in depth, Dr. Graham, maybe you can talk to us a little bit more about immune-related AEs um, and then HEBA about the TKI adverse effects, but a little bit more kind of in detail about how you would manage some of those different toxicities or the strategies to manage those, just given how broad of a variation of toxicities you guys have described so far. Yeah, absolutely. And luckily with the ongoing use of these, um, these checkpoint inhibitors in lots of different cancers, I think that the oncology community as a whole, and actually more important, our colleagues in other medicine disciplines are getting a lot more adept at recognizing the at least the possibility of these um, adverse effects. So, you know, I think the first thing is how severe is the adverse effect that you're dealing with? And there's nice grading systems out there for basically every side effect that you could anticipate. There are certain things like hypothyroidism, which is super common, that you're going to replace the thyroid hormone, but you're going to keep going with treatment. Then there's things that are higher grade, like a hepatitis, a colitis, nephritis, (laughs) any kind of itis, where you're going to pause the checkpoint inhibitor. You're going to give high dose steroids. If you're not seeing improvement after a week or so, you might consider adding additional immunosuppressive agents as needed, involving the appropriate specialist, you know, GI, et cetera. And then if it's a really severe or life-threatening adverse event, you might talk about permanently discontinuing the checkpoint inhibitor. Thanks, Dr. Graham. In terms of the TKIs, um, first, we do have a couple like class monitoring requirements for these medications. So we'll definitely monitor blood pressure, the TSH, proteinuria, LFTs, and electrolytes throughout the treatment process. And then in terms of management options for TKI-related side effects, those, as I alluded to before, includes temporarily holding the dose until the patient's side effect resolves before resuming the medication again. And that's either at full dose or a reduced dose for lower-grade toxicities or potentially permanently discontinuing the medication if the patient presents with an unacceptable toxicity. So that would be a higher grade toxicity, maybe three or higher. With TKIs, usually holding or discontinuing the offending agent reverses the adverse effect and brings the patient back to baseline without need for further intervention. And just, I just kind of want to make one other thing clear. The time to reversal really depends on the half-life of the medication. So for example, Ixitinib, it's given twice daily, which clues you in that has a shorter half-life versus Lenvatinib is once daily. And Capozantinib has the longest half-life of approximately 20 days. So you have these variations um, in these TKIs and that clues you in into how, like, how long you would need to hold the medication before those side effects could resolve. And I think that made me think of one other thing, which is that, you know, we actually don't have a lot of medication options for RCC outside of these classes. And so we'll often tolerate some of these adverse effects because we just don't have a ton of different class options. So for example, the proteinuria, a lot of our patients already have baseline proteinuria, um, sometimes even in the nephrotic range, and you're just a little bit stuck. So I think, you know, none of these guidelines are set in stone and everything is obviously you know, a case-by-case kind of situation. That's a great point, making sure that you're customizing therapy for the patient that you're seeing in front of you. So we've talked about a lot in the past kind of 30 minutes so far, and I think we've seen 
you guys have done a great job illustrating how far we've, we've come in, in a pretty short period of time. So thinking about that and, and just how quickly we've developed and to where we are today, what are some other pieces of data that would really be valuable to you in the future or questions that you'd like answered to continue to better treat these patients and really help to guide decision-making if that's between therapies or just new data that would help kind of in terms of their management? Yeah. So things I'd like to see in the future, and this is maybe just like a pharmacist perspective, but just having a little better guidance regarding which TKI combo to pick once you've determined to pursue an IO-TKI combination. Right now, we're again, just individualizing it to patients. So what we think we can start the patient on, for example, do we have samples of the medication? Can we, you know, or do we need a medication that's a short half-life like Ixitinib to start them on just so we can monitor adverse effects and see if we can quickly peel that back if we need to. And I'd also like to see head-to-head trials comparing the category one treatment options in clear cell RCC And Dr. Graham already alluded to this, but I would be curious if in the future there'll be guidance on whether or not treatment with a category one IO, IO, or IO TKI option precludes treatment with another category one IO, IO, or IO TKI combination option down the line if the patient progresses or has unacceptable toxicities. Yeah, those are all great points. And actually, there's a national cooperative group trial now that's basically looking after Ipinevo if someone does not have progression of disease, if it's better to go to maintenance NEVO like we in standard of care, or if we should add CABO to the NEVO. So I think really just trying to figure out the optimal second line management is really important. And then, like I mentioned earlier, we're kind of limited to a few classes in RCC. So immunotherapy, TKIs, we have some mTOR inhibitors. So it would be really great to see some therapies with novel mechanisms of action kind of come into this space. And I also wonder about whether we can take advantage of about how immunoresponsive RCC is and whether we're going to see things like CAR T cells, bispecific antibodies, things like that move into this space. I think that would be really exciting. Well, sounds like we'll have to plan to have you guys come back and update us again in a couple of years with hopefully all of the new data that will continue to develop. Oncology is a rapidly evolving space. And so always appreciate a very clear view of a complicated space and and helping us to think through what those treatment options look like. So I want to say thank you to both of you for a great topic and great discussion. Really appreciate you guys being here today and all of your insights today. If you haven't before, I encourage you all to check out ASHP's clinical resources so you can find exclusive member offerings such as resource centers. And we have resource centers on critical care, nutrition support, opioid management, infectious disease, and more. Other offerings include credentialing and privileging resource center, a preceptor toolkit, and then forums such as the ASHP section, of clinical specialists and scientists connect community. And there you can continue to exchange ideas just like we heard today and post questions with your peers. Thanks again for tuning in for this session of Therapeutic Thursdays and join us here every Thursday where we will continue talking with ASHP members and content matter experts on a variety of clinical topics. Thanks, Kate. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to ASHP Official, the voice of pharmacists advancing healthcare. Be sure to visit ashp.org forward slash podcast to discover more great episodes, access show notes, and download the episode transcript. If you loved the episode and want to hear more, be sure to subscribe, rate, or leave a review. Join us next time on ASHP Official.